uh, Jason Call. I am happy to be um, uh, substitute hosting for Greg Arias. Uh, he's a journalist student at uh, Mount Sac College, and he has a workshop to do tonight. So he's off doing his journalist thing uh, and has left the podcast in our capable hands. So I want to welcome Thomas, uh, Elizabeth, and Robin here. Um, it is uh, uh, Friday, March 12th. And a lot of stuff going on in the news this week. Uh, we are going to start with a story that should be of great interest to everybody. Uh, we have not seen positive outcomes uh, for decades uh, on instances of police abuse and police uh, uh, murder. Uh, but we have hopefully... Um, uh, we will end up with a different situation in this particular case. And we are talking about the trial now of Officer Derek Chauvin, who is the officer who knelt on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes, 46 seconds um, until he had passed, uh, sparking riots uh, and protests all across the country. Um, and uh, Thomas, uh, why don't you go ahead and start us off with some thoughts about this trial uh, and, and expected or maybe not expected outcomes? Uh, well, I mean, it's quite telling. Uh, they started with a second degree murder charge and it's been um, it's come out now that they've decided to uh, reduce the charges to third degree. Because this, I mean, they're scared that they're not going to get a conviction, basically, uh, which is what it comes down to. And I think that's quite telling of a system that has protected law enforcement for so long um, that they're worried that they can't even get a conviction for what was a murder on on video. Um, quite blatant as well. Um, and I think it brings up the, the larger question of what is it that we need to do in order to stop this from happening over and over and over again? Because we keep seeing this repeat itself every so every so few months or years. Um, and I think we're not going to get anywhere until we end qualified immunity for police officers. Um, and I think... Um, it's just, I just think it's, it's, uh, I don't know if, uh, for anybody listening, I don't know if anyone saw, but the family won the civil case. So they got a payout. I think it was over $23 million. $27 million. 27, um, that's it. Sorry. 27. Yeah, $27 million yeah. for the family of George Floyd, which unfortunately yeah. doesn't bring <clears throat> Mr. Floyd back. No, no. And, but this is, but this, this highlights, this happens every time they're more than willing to pay out in terms of money, in terms of, um, but it's, it's, it's not good enough. It's not good enough anymore. We can't, we, the taxpayer cannot be used as, as a way to just uh, pay for a police abuses, um, a police murder. Um, it, it can't, it can't be, uh, that cannot be the only restitutory of justice that we have in this system. And, and the, and the truth just... is, <clears throat> a, a cash payout as a civil payment is not a measure of accountability for the police no. itself. No. Um, Elizabeth, thoughts on this situation right now? Yeah, so like both of you guys mentioned, um, Finally, we arrived at the moment where we're going to find out whether police officers 
uh, are held accountable for their actions and for their crimes of murder. Um, I did see that it was going back and forth from, uh, was it second degree murder and third degree murder? I was just wondering if you guys know why that is, that it's going back and forward. Like, is there... Uh, my, 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 yeah, sorry, go on. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, my take is that they are worried that they're not going to get a conviction. Like, that's what it's mainly about. They, 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 they have an easier chance of getting a conviction on a third-degree murder charge than a second degree. Um, I also heard that there's, like, this case... Um, that will like set a, pres a precedent for third degree cases, third degree murder cases. And um, I guess if that other case gets like thrown out, then if he gets convicted of third degree, then they would like be able to reopen the case. And I don't know, did you guys hear about that? Um, what I'm what I'm reading in the article right now uh, says that the settlement could have implications. I'm reading directly from the Washington Post. Settlement could have implications for the criminal trial of Chauvin, who is charged with second and third degree murder, uh, and yeah. um, and second degree manslaughter. Um, but it doesn't say what those uh, what those impacts are. Um, but it but it does says say the settlement will will potentially have an impact on. Um, the actual criminal charges yeah yeah, yeah and I, I think yeah sorry go on I just feel like there you know what always seems to happen is they get away with it no no one is held accountable and that's the sad thing of of where we find you know ourselves in as a country and accountability for our police officers that's right. all and one of the things, and Robin, I'll get you in a second, but I wanted to comment the one of the things about um, not holding them immediately accountable is that then they seem to have a free hand to go out and commit further abuses. So it's that there's no there's no learning here. Um, it, uh, uh, there's no retraining. I mean, we saw with the Rochester police um, who who essentially were were not held accountable for the in custody death of. Um, uh, Daniel Prude, and you know, just a matter of weeks later, they're out pepper spraying a mother and her child. Um, so the, we've got to have a way to have um, a change in behavior. I mean, what we really want here is accountability to translate into change of behavior, and it's just not doing that right now. Robin, uh, what are your thoughts on this situation? You know, as Elizabeth said, like, you know, we've seen that we've seen these trials happen just so like there's I feel like it's a show of like the state saying like, look, see, we're doing our end. We're trying all these um, people, but there's never actually real accountability or a real reckoning of like what's wrong with our criminal justice system. Um, we saw the video we see like on Twitter. It's like and media is calling the trial of George Floyd. George Floyd is not the perpetrator. He is the victim. He was murdered at the hands of the police. They knew what they were doing. They're, they have medical training, or at least somewhat of a medical training, to know that if you're kneeling on someone's neck for eight minutes, that they will pass away from suffocation or strangulation or whatever the uh, medical term is for it. So... I'm just, you know, I'm really, there's like a part of me that's really hoping 
that get he gets tried on the highest count that they're able to try him on. I'm also hoping that the people, uh, Thomas Lane, Totao, Jay Alexander, Kwong, I, I hope they're, they're all, you know, found guilty as well. And this really sh it shifts, like, the whole culture around holding police officers accountable for m abuse, for violence, for everything wrong that they do. I hope, like, it shifts the culture. I hope, like, police unions and... Um, departments start changing their tune and they start actually really working towards um, not using police brutality or you miss abusing their power just because they know they can get away with it. Like, I'm sure this wasn't his first um, misconduct or police brutality case or instance where he used police brutality. It's, I just hope that officers think like five times before they do anything like this again and it's I'm just I'm just really sick and tired of seeing like more people dying at the hands of the police and like it, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of Breonna Taylor so it's just mm -hmm. it's just heartbreaking and hopefully there is justice and there is accountability but I'm not I'm not holding my breath because there's so far the jurors that they selected are three white men one man one black man and one juror of color like if it's a majority white case or white jury it's gonna I feel like it'll end in a mistrial and the judge already refused or there was something where he was refusing to prosecute or refusing to add a higher charge and it's the same judge that has shown his bias I'm just just like you know like I feel like it's already on a bad start yeah, yeah and it's, it, I just want to add to that, Derek, Derek Chauvin, um, if you look at the statistics, he's been involved in five police murders, five wow. cases. So uh, they, 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 um, I'm just going to get it up because I think um, the police killed, I believe, 470, yeah. Something to remember, because I, tw I tweeted, I didn't realize this, but I tweeted this out, that something to remember today at the start of Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis for the murder of George Floyd, more than 470 people have been killed in Minneapolis by the police, right? Chauvin was involved in five of those people being killed. So he's so he, so not only did he kill George Floyd, he's been involved in five instances of police murder, right? And and, and Thomas, it's it, it you it, it's such an important point that you make here because we find out so often that uh, the you know the quote unquote bad apples they like to call them bad apples. Um, have uh, often their own internal rap sheets of abuse and violence that are that are you know dozens of cases long. Um, I think we we found the same thing with uh, the officer I, and I forget his name um, who who killed uh, Mike Brown and Ferguson. When we took a look at that, I mean he, you know uh, uh, essentially an internal rap sheet if you can call it that. And and then the point that Robin made about the other officers involved in this being held accountable also yeah. because there is such an internal cult of self-protection with the police that I know. Yeah. And I say this as somebody whose brother-in-law was a police officer and he told me, I could tell you stories for days about cover-ups and this and that where, you know, if, if you really knew what went on in police departments, you know, everybody would just absolutely freak out, but it's so hard to yeah. get a hold of that information and then have uh, police hold themselves internally accountable. So it's an awesome point that you brought up there, Robin. Thank you. And Thomas, it looks like you got something else to add. 
No, I was just going to say, that it, was it. It's, it's, it's almost like, has anyone watched The Shield, the TV show? It's almost like a documentary, like, if you watch <laughs> it. It's, it's yeah, like, it's, it's, it. it's just, it's just insane. Like, you know, and I think uh, nothing's, nothing will change unless we end qualified immunity. Like, I, yeah. I, we have to do that. But there is an organization uh, for anyone listening called endqualifiedimmunity.org and they're petitioning Joe Biden to end qualified immunity. So for anyone that's interested that's listening, please go to that website. Um, please uh, please put out a share the petition. Um, we need to try and hold this administration accountable to criminal justice. We cannot have criminal justice unless we end qualified immunity. Um, we need to hold police officers accountable. Yeah, and, and as a candidate, just as a candidate myself, a candidate for Congress, I am in support of the defund, the defund the police movement. There are real policy um, uh, actions that are part of the defund police movement. I consider myself an abolitionist. I want to decarcerate our system. And I want to make sure all the funding that we put towards, you know, police and weaponry um, and, and, you know, this sort of system of abuse gets taken out of the hands of those abusers and put into the community. Because honestly, if we had a society that wasn't rife with poverty, um, that had opportunity, real opportunity for all, um, that didn't sa saddle people uh, it, with, with thousands of dollars of debt for students, student uh um and and healthcare and all of that that we wouldn't really need this policing anyway so let's really take a look at what's going on with our society and why we actually even feel we need police because police yeah. do not solve problems they exacerbate no, problems for the most part all right um so hopefully we get a good outcome with that trial but you know the historically um we we, we maybe should not keep our hopes up um, next thing I want to move on to today uh, is we've got a governor in New York who is just mired in accusation after accusation um, and almost getting lost in this is the fact that uh, what was it, upwards of 15,000 people in nursing homes have died because, you know, he, he wasn't honest about what was going on with COVID in the state uh, with nursing. Um, Robin, do you have any thoughts on Governor Cuomo right now, either the nursing home situation or the sexual assault charges? He needs to resign because of both. Like, we can't we can't be a party that like touts like, oh, Trump is a sexual predator, which you know he was, and try not not hold our own accountable. It's more people are coming out with where Cuomo created a culture of sexual harassment it's not one victim it's he would make jokes he would ask if um i think one of the um people who came out said that he asked if she's slept with older men like it's disgusting and he's saying he was one of the sorry it's just a lot like i get heated about this just because it's so disgusting like just resign you were one of the front on the front lines calling for trump's resignation over sexual har harassment and assault scandals so why aren't you holding yourself to that same standard he also refused to let the um i want to say this the department of justice new jersey state department of justice look into it he was going to hire his own he was going to be like an internal thing in the governor's office so it smells like a cover-up he needs to resign it's it's appalling that he's not even considering it it's absolutely it's just, absolutely it's disgusting elizabeth elizabeth 
Yeah, he needs to resign because like Robin said, we can't be the party, the de well, Democrats, I consider myself a Democrat, but uh, yeah, we can't be the party that points finger at the Republican party and says, you're X, Y, Z. And within our own party, we have the same problems. I, I am seeing that Schumer and Gillibrand have both asked for his resignation. And then I see him, he has put out statements denying the accusations and um, had mentioned something like he's not gonna give in to um, cancel culture or something like that. And I just feel like even his response to the accusations is disregarding to the victims that have come forward. That's highly um, inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it further demonstrates how much willing he's uh, to, how willing he is to like cover up his misconduct. Yeah. Thomas? Well, I, look, I, I might get a lot of heat for this, but th this is a direct result of not taking uh, Joe Biden's accusation seriously. The Democrats, I'm sorry, but Democrats, unfortunately, uh, and I'm seeing a lot of this, is that they use the fact that Trump never got held accountable for his sexual assault allegations, right? And they deflect and say, well, Trump never got held accountable, so why are we, why are we holding our own accountable? Right. And this there's is a, lot, this is a, a lot of people saying that. Yep. And this is this is a slippery slope where we where we just we just decide that we're not going to hold our own accountable because the other side isn't doing so. And you made a good point, Elizabeth, that um, we are better than this. OK, this 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 is a non-starter. If you if you decide that you're going to assault women while in office, not only should you resign, but you should be held. You, 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 you should be you should be holding legal charges. Like this, this is not okay, and it can never be okay. And so I don't take. I, I unfortunately I don't take people seriously. If you if you are calling for Cuomo to resign, you should be directing that energy towards Biden. Also, you should be directing that energy towards Trump. Like anybody, I don't care what, who you who you are affiliated with. I don't care your political ideology. I do not care what party you represent. This is not okay. It's not okay. And I, and I, I want to point out that although this is the sexual assault allegations are very serious, the the Nix the Nixonite scandal with the care home situation, that alone, not only should he resign, but he should be held in he should be held in contempt. He should be he should be impeached, not not just resign, but that he not only did he cover up that he that he deliberately killed fifteen thousand people in care homes, right? He used his own office to 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 uh, to fudge the numbers. Yeah, he's, so he spreads dis disinformation. Aides, yeah, his aides are complicit in this, not just yeah. him, right? So you've got an office of people in that administration who are complicit in 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 skewing COVID numbers, right? Look at Texas. They're right? essentially and willing to lie for their boss. With Ron DeSantis, right, and how they went after that journalist. For, for just reporting on COVID numbers, right? And the reaction people had to that response. And then you look at what Cuomo's done, it's the exact same scenario where they're fudging numbers to try and make it look better than it actually is. And it's deliberately killed people. And that yeah. is what's happened. 
Yeah, we, I mean, really, we're we're mm -hmm. talking about uh, an, an an issue where where legal charges should be filed. Um, Robin, you had your hand raised there for a second. Did you want to jump in again? Yeah, okay. I just wanted to say with all the meat, like he was, I feel like Democrats are like toting, like, you know, we support the Me Too women. We believe all women, they wear the slogans, they tweet about it during this month, Women's History Month. But when it comes to real accountability, it's, oh, no, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to do that. Let's just sweep it under the rug. We need, we need Cuomo to run for, like, another political seat. You know, he's so charming, blah, 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 blah. Or, like, you know, we believe Tara Reid, but we're still going to put Biden as the front runner. It's, it's just appalling. Like, I have issues with the Democratic Party, and I'm saying that as a delegate. I'm saying that, like, it's just, it's not just elected, it's the party itself. Like our leaders yeah. take, will sign a pledge saying that they're not going to take this money or they're going to look into sexual harassment scandals and then they never do or they take that money. It's just, just filled with hypocrisy. It's so a I'm monstrous with, level of hypocrisy. Right? It's, it's just, you know, if the Democrats switch and the Republicans switched colors, we're the same person. Yeah. the same party it's it's truly appalling and i agree with everything thomas said like he said it so well it's well, accountability uh, man i just want to add to this that the, 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 there are a lot of democrats that that said that cynthia nixon wasn't a serious candidate right when when she when she uh, put up a fight against cuomo right and said that she should just drop out she she's she's got no experience and i just want to say that that didn't age well at all for all the, for all the, for all the people that said that she's not she she should she's a non-starter um I'm sorry, but Cuomo has a history here. In fact, he tried to cut Medicaid in a pandemic. I don't people people forget this, but he tried to cut Medicaid in a pandemic. Like this, this is your governor. This is who's represented you in the Democratic Party. Um, above all the allegations, above all that's happened, he should not. He should not be governor if he's no. If he's willing to do things like that in a pandemic. I'm sorry, but hopefully, hopefully this is the end of his uh, political career. I mean, really, honestly, uh, I find it interesting that also um, his accuser, uh, the first first person who bravely stepped up, uh, Lindsay Boylan, and wrote that Medium article about yeah. her experiences. Um, the she was she ran for Congress in New York's tenth last cycle uh, against Gerald Nadler, and uh, Gerald Nadler, uh, I seem to remember, is uh, reading just you know, a few hours ago that he is calling for Cuomo's uh, impeachment also. Um, the, the thing I, I wanted to really say about this is just about the culture of sexual harassment from people like Andrew Cuomo, who have a lot of institutional power, who have this kind of macho kind of bravado, like, you know, I'm better than other people. We have seen this over and over and over again with men like Cuomo who believe that they can treat, I mean, I think they probably have a lot of disregard for people in general, but women in particular, they treat as if they are personal property in many cases. You know, the things that Lindsay was saying about comments, about her looks, um, you know, when, when we look at Joe Biden, and I'm going to catch heat for saying this, but when we look at Joe Biden, it's the same kind of thing about objectifying women. Oh, aren't you cute? Aren't you pretty? You know, um, and, and um, 
the other thing is I, I was a teacher for, for 20 years. We get trained to recognize grooming behaviors and what Cuomo does, uh, the way he talks to his underlings, to his staff, those are grooming behaviors, you know, just little subtle hints here and there that, hey, you know, if we can get behind closed doors, things would be groovy. You know, th those are the kind of things that that women like Lindsay and the other, other women who have come forward have had to put up with the in their careers for decades. I mean, honestly, for eternity, we are, we are getting to hopefully a turning point where we are, we are going to recognize this kind of interaction. We are going to, we're going to put a stop to it. And we're going to hold people like Andrew Cuomo accountable because I guarantee you six people coming forward right now, Cuomo over his career, there are dozens, if not a hundred women who have something to say about the way he has approached them inappropriately for, you know, sexual purposes being, you know, in this sort of power imbalance um, situation that he's got going on. So there is no doubt to me in my mind that Cuomo has been behaving like this literally his entire career. He comes mm -hmm. from a political family. His father was the governor of New York. He has had access to that kind of power and influence his entire life. Um, and and if, he, if we're only just catching up to it now, it, it is a decades long thing. And I bet that there, I bet that I, I, at least a dozen more women will come forward yeah. and say, yeah, I had yeah, that will. same experience mm -hmm. um, because that's the yeah. way this goes. I've seen it happen before. Um, Hopefully an ignominious end to Andrew Cuomo's career will be coming very shortly. And you know what? Maybe if they get him out of office, we will actually get Cynthia Nixon in, in a special election. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, something a little bit more positive, and I'm so excited to uh, uh, talk about this story. Um, in Nevada this last week, um, the state party elections ended up electing a clean sweep to my understanding of all mm -hmm. of the executive positions in the Nevada party. Now, um, the Nevada democratic party is historically extremely, um, sort of, uh, what do I want to say? Insular. It's been Harry Reid's creation for, yeah. for the, for the last couple of decades. Um, and he is, he has been very, you know, obviously he was the um, uh, Senate majority leader for a long time. Um, and so for the progressives, and I'm talking about people in DSA, people who identify as socialists, people who have said, we can, you know, I think a lot of this, I don't want to ramble too much, but a lot of this impetus came out of the shenanigans that happened in Clark County in 2016 with the the, the presidential primary. Um, yeah. And so the people who were essentially abused, if you remember Barbara Boxer in there flipping people off in 2016 and, you know, the line of police protecting her and, and, and she was so disrespectful to the Bernie supporters uh, uh, in, at, at, the, uh, at the Clark County Convention uh, back then. Um, but what we have now is these activists figured out how to take control of the party. They brought people into the party in grassroots positions and then were able to elect their people upwards. And here we go. We've got a clean sweep of, uh, uh, of the Nevada Democrats. And the Nevada Democratic Party is now a fully progressive party. But here's the kicker. The outgoing state party chair and staff paid themselves severance 
out of the Nevada State Democratic Party's coffers and then paid a bunch of their consultants, they essentially robbed the party of a half a million dollars, walked off with it, paid their own people. And here we are talking about democratic unity. Well, why does unity always mean we got to go their way and they can't come our way? Um, Thomas, what do you got to say about this? I, you know, even though they they just robbed the entire fund, um, and the fact that it's legal, the it must be, I, it's obviously legal. But it I mean, is the legal, fact that, of course, the fact, the fact, the fact that this is legal is is, is incredible. But but I will say this um, for for listeners who aren't aware, um, I remember in my in my home country, in the UK, during uh, when Jeremy Corbyn was still prime minister. And it came out eventually uh, through a, a, a leak. Uh, it was called the Le Labour Leaks Report. Uh, that basically people within his own party basically tanked his campaign purposely um, against Boris Johnson. And I think we should look at this as a good thing that's happening in Nevada because I'd rather all these people quit and get out and not interfere um, because unfortunately, when we talk about unity, what usually happens is um, they will say and um, they will say the right things on television, but behind closed doors, they will interfere in um, in a progressive socialist um, policies because that's not what they actually agree with. And that's what happened with Jeremy Corbyn's campaign that people, Labour, uh, Labour MPs were in his own party, basically purposely tanked his campaign basically in order for the conservatives to get ahead um and so this is where i say a lot of the corporatist democrats they would rather burn the party to the ground than allow socialists and progressives to actually gain any form of power and that's what you see that's what you saw in nevada they would rather rob the entire fund from their supposable that from their supposable party than actually um didn't actually, uh, you know, actually help them do anything because uh, what it really comes down to is that, unfortunately, we have a corporate wing of this party that um, puts um, puts biz big business first ahead of people. Unfortunately, um, that's most of the party. That's um, pretty much all the yeah. party because because the Demo unfortunately people like to think the Democrats are the left, but they're at, they are a corporate party at the end of the day. Absolutely. Um, and I think uh, I I personally think this is a good thing because they can't inter. They're not gonna. It's it's I I I truly believe that you it, you people like to think that we can have unity with these people. I don't. Think, that's not true. I don't think I don't think you can. It's just not possible. These people would. Like I said, they will burn this thing to the ground before they ever allow you to flourish. Um, so I, anyway, that's my that's my view on this. Elizabeth. <clears throat> yeah. So I heard the news and I was really excited just because um, we have recently gone through this democratic process here in California, and I'm so bummed that Robin left us because. She has uh, won an elected position as a California uh, state democratic delegate, and so have I. So we both have a little insight on how this structure works. Um, so it's really awesome to see other states organizing um, 
to change and hold the Democratic State Party accountable to us, the people that it represents. So um, I wanna say thank you to uh, DSA because DSA also here in Los Angeles helped me and my slates win uh, delegate seats in the same kind of structure. Um, and in, I believe in a month, we will also be electing our democratic chair and our vice chairs and our secretaries. And um, we will also see where, you know, the head for us in California looks like uh, in the Democratic Party. But that is so shady that they took the money. Well, they no. put it, I believe they put, they gave it, they put it in a... They, they transferred a bunch of it to the Democratic Senate campaign committee, right? Yeah. So that the, so yeah. that essentially, essentially moving off to the Senate campaign so that Senate campaign could do whatever they want, you know, and, and what this is, is it is, it shows you that the Democratic Party and I, and, you know, I'm, I, I don't even care if I get in trouble for saying this, because I've said it a, a dozen times, the Democratic Party op operates as a soft money laundering operation for, for, for corporate money. I mean, it really does. So that money, you know, what I really like about what we're, what that, you know, where I can say, I don't care that they took the money. It was legal. I, I imagine that the DNC even advised them to get that money out of there. Yeah, um, probably. But what that means is, and, and I've made, I've put the call on this out on this on Twitter, uh, that we need to help our allies in the Nevada Democratic Party rebuild their funds. And then we're going to, and they're going to do it with all individual donations they're not going to do it with corporate money that's what i love about this because even if i as a candidate right locally here if i was a progressive candidate and i said i took no corporate money but i took state party money that money would be corporate money you know yeah. because the corporate because money shuffles between campaigns um, mm -hmm. uh, corporations will donate directly to the state party. So I can't legitimately say I take no corporate money if I state, state, take state party money. But now progressives in Nevada, if we help them fund small donations, they will actually be able to say that and mean that and still take state party money because the Can state just, party will be a non-corporate party. I want to add to that, Jason, just because in the organizing we do within the Democratic Party, a lot of the, the big obstacle we face is how are we gonna fundraise? Yeah. And a lot of people within the party um, make the excuse or kind of just look the other way of this corporate money is because, well, how, other, how, how can we fundraise if we don't have this money coming in? We have to think, be competitive. And I think what's great about Nevada is that we are going to see for the first time how progressives fundraise in a state. And like you mentioned, we need to help them out and show the rest of the nation that we can raise money by not taking fossil fuel money, special interest money. So we yeah. really need to, um, you know, help them out. And another thing that I wanna add, you know, I'm sometimes I'm conflicted when I have you know, invested so much time within the Democratic Party. But at the end of the day, you know, it's local politics. It's a little different because you make real connections with real people. You're not making connections with establishment types. So we have 
uh, a way to create a relationship that's understanding of our progressive values. And those are the grassroots people within the party are the people that we can affect to, you know, make change and to change that culture of accepting the dirty money. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, so as, just as a, a follow-up to this and, and, you know, what, another thing that I'm so excited about with, with uh, the, the Nevada um, phenomenon, I call it phenomenon at this point, um, and, and following on the heels of what just happened in California, and I'm so excited for your elections upcoming and, and uh, to see what's going to happen there and to get, you know, hopefully you guys have a progressive chair and an executive board and all of that mm -hmm. thing, fingers crossed. But the, the Nevada and California have shown that if progressives, socialists, leftists can come, can understand what the party structure is, can come in in organized numbers. I mean, the organizing behind what happened in California was, it was stupendous. You know, the, uh, the, just the use of technology to make sure everybody knew these are the people we're voting for. And you guys won 87% of those seats. It was just absolutely phenomenal. But to show that if we can do this in an organized fashion, we can do this here in Washington because we're going to try. Um, and I have been talking to people in Colorado, in Wisconsin, in North Carolina. People look are looking and saying, ooh, I want to do Because, you know, I am supportive of third-party movements. I really am. And I, but our, our, our political system is not set up to support third parties right now, not effectively. But if we can get people to filter into the Democratic Party the way they did in Nevada and start taking control of the Democratic Party, um, then, then we can make some real change. And then maybe we can start changing the system so that we can have a real multi-party system in this, you know. But if we're going to rely, we're, we're never going to have the Democratic Party as it is right now make room for third parties. They're simply not going to do it. So we have to commandeer that party and we have to make those rules to get that uh, uh, further diversity of representation because we're stuck in that corporate duopoly right now. It's never going to happen through the Republican Party, but I do believe that there's a window of hope that we can get it to happen through the Democratic Party. So um, I'm, I'm going to be behind that effort all the way. Yeah. Thomas? Yeah. No, I was, I was just going to say that I, I'm I'm for an in and out in and out strategy. Like if you like, um, I if you look at um, I don't know if you've seen, but in Seattle. Um, you've got Councilwoman uh, Seawant, who's a socialist. Shama Swan, socialist. Yeah. Swan, sorry, my um, but socialist alternative, and she she's an example of doing it outside the two party system and doing it successfully. It's so much so that she's now actually got a recall campaign from backed by Amazon and big yep. business. But yep, they're trying to get her out of office because because of what she's been able to do. And I think uh, you take you take that you take that idea, and you you go right. If I can do it, if I can do it um, uh, independently in this state or this uh, city, or then do it. And then if I can do it for a democratic party, then do it. We need to we need to try. At this point, we don't have time. We have to try anything to try and yep. shift the curve of yep. where we're going. Um, and I think um, if we can get as many wins as we possibly can, then great. Um, 
and I do I do emphasize the fact that we you're right we do need we do need um, I do believe we need we, uh, we need multiple parties because we need to be able to hold Democrats accountable also yeah um, we, we can't hold yeah. the Democratic Party accountable from the outside without a strong left party and we can't create a strong left party under the current political mm. conditions so you know it's a it's a uh, you know a catch-22 there so um but i fully understand people who cannot stomach the democratic party and can't be involved with all those people i say more power to you build that third you know stay unified stay in solidarity um and do what you can outside the party for sure um so we've almost uh, come to the end of the show here i think but um Greg wanted us to talk a little bit uh, as we wrap up here. Uh, we have been under COVID pandemic conditions for uh, a year now. I, I, I remember, um, I believe it was March 15th, I think that my state of Washington went into lockdown. Um, I remember how it impacted the presidential primary. Um, and I remember Wisconsin and Bernie telling voters in Wisconsin, please stay home. And Biden telling voters in Wisconsin, get out there and vote. Um, so, uh, you know, how has, uh, Elizabeth, let me start with you. Uh, how has your year been with the, with the pandemic? Where, where do you feel, uh, how do you feel like your life has changed? Um, tell us about it. Yeah, so when we were hit with the stay at home order um what began to happen is um, a lot of people within my circle began to realize that we live in like different um like we move differently within the world so a lot of the people that i know were kind of still forced to go to work so a lot of us, we were kind of like, nothing's changed. We still have to go to work. Uh, we still have to go out there and expose ourselves to this virus. Um, so I guess I just feel like within this last year, a lot of people that didn't have that class consciousness within them were kind of forced to reckon with what our social position is in our society. So that's kind of like something that I saw a lot of people um, kind of come to a realization with. Also, uh, I saw a lot of people within my circle willing to say, you know what, this, what I've been given is not enough. And I did see a lot of friends and families go back to school because we saw that we were exposing ourselves to COVID-19 and we were still working these minimum wage jobs. You know, our employers weren't working with us uh, with, you know, calling off work or, you know, you know, days where we couldn't make it until maybe I, I wanna say like April, the end of April, then, you know, our companies began to be like, oh, we need to accommodate the workers. But at the beginning, it was kind of like, you know, you still have to come to work and all that stuff. So I just feel like um, finally we see the end, the light at the end of the tunnel, right? Because I, I did see that vaccines are going to be available for all adults starting May 1st. So yeah, we're seeing, yeah, we're seeing that 
we're going to come out of this. Now the new problem that we face is whether people are going to want to take the vaccine or not, right? Um, so I guess just the highlight of the whole experience is just kind of like seeing how our society treats us because of the class position we find ourselves in and kind of mm -hmm. like, you know, like a little disregard for the working class because even a few weeks ago, you know, those eight senators refused to give workers that living wage, which is 15 minimum wage. So it's just kind of like a harsh reality of how the working class is treated here in this country. That would be yeah. my, my thought, my overall thought. That's great. Um, I, and I, I, I just on that last little piece that, you know, I, I bring up something that Sean King says um, uh, frequently, and that is the only justice we ever get is that uh, which we fight for ourselves. And, you know, I think that's really what we, what people in the working class have, have found is that they are somewhat abandoned uh, in, in this crisis. And that in order to get what our due is, uh, as workers and just just as people living, you know, just as humans uh, who deserve dignity and, and safety and protection, uh, we have to fight for it constantly. Uh, nobody, nobody in the ruling classes is giving us a damn thing. We have to go out there and demand it. Uh, Thomas. I think just to add to uh, what Elizabeth has said, um, I think... Uh, what it's really done is it's opened the eyes to what 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 is an essential worker um, or what is the value that we put on people that we describe as essential workers. And I think it's also it's also tipped. It's really opened the eyes of how bad the social safety net system is in this country, like to a point where even um even just a mild pressure on things that are slightly different from the norm is utterly devastating. And I think what COVID has done, and this is a prime example, right? I have friends who, who work, uh, include myself, we work in an essential workers position. And when COVID hit, we were told, you know, we will cover, um, and people, my friends were told, you know, we, we We'll cover two weeks of paid leave for COVID. And that was predominantly because of the COVID relief package that that put in place that you had to, that employers would have to give you at least two weeks of pay to stay at home if you get exposed or you get COVID, right? And the problem with that is that if it happens once, okay, you're covered. If it happens twice, you're not covered, right? And the amount of people that I know who either get exposed indirectly or directly and they're told that they can't come into work and they don't have any pay and they have to stay at home. And I think what this has shown is that um, we, can't, we can't have a system where, you know, a system that shows that you rely on, on a Page, in order to survive, you're living paycheck to paycheck, um, and I and a system that is so uh, can be affected so heavily by just a slight imbalance of things going the way that it should be going 
proves that this is a failed system. Um, it's not, I, I don't, it's not, uh, I'm not surprised that people like the World Economic Forum are trying to rehabilitate um, uh, the system right now. They're trying to say that we can, we can change things or tweak things slightly in order to try and sell this as like, hey, we can come out of this better with the current system. I don't think that's possible. Um, the pandemic has shown that uh, healthcare should be a human right. Um, the pandemic has shown that housing should be a human right. The pandemic has shown that all these things that people you know, sort of took for granted before um, actually um, has caused, you know, the idea that I'm okay, as long as I'm okay, that's all right, is, complete, is completely flawed. Um, because if your neighbor's not okay, then you could also not be okay now. Because the pandemic has shown that if your neighbor is sick, then potentially I will get sick. And so um, it's not this singular sort of viewpoint of, or this perspective that if I'm okay, then everything else is fine. It's just, it's just gone. It's, we live in a society, we need to be, we need to be um, organizing in a way that uh helps everyone not just looking out for yourself and i think america has to come to terms with the idea that actually we need to have a collective mindset rather than a singular sort of independent mindset that we've had for so long and so i know i'm going on a little bit here but that's no, great but just ju just to just to highlight this isn't just a u.s issue right my home country is feeling this also even though we have the bare minimum of healthcare in my home country, um, housing is very much a huge problem. We, we people, uh, rent arrears are just through the roof. People are having are going to have to pay out at some point, and uh, it's good. And even after, co even even when we get everyone vaccinated, we're going to have to deal with the after effects of what this has caused. Rent is going to come due at some point. And we have to have a serious conversation about what is the flaw? Is the flaw you live on the street or is the flaw you live in a one bed sit apartment, right? And the flaw should be you have a home regardless. That should be the flaw. And we need to, see, we need to seriously have that conversation, not in just in this country, but in the world. Because right now what we're seeing is that if you can if you can have a moratorium on evictions, right? We need to have a serious discussion on okay, if that's if you're saying that housing is a human right and that you can't afford people to be evicted in a time of a pandemic, then really we should be saying okay, people just shouldn't be homeless. Like that 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 is as simple as that. And I think uh, we need to have that discussion. Uh, that needs to be a a, a broader level. Than what we've yeah. done and what we have before. <clears throat> I mean, ima imagine, imagine how quickly we could have come through a pandemic uh, if we had um, housing for everybody, if we had healthcare for everybody, uh, right. and is if, as you said, we had this collective mindset that 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 my neighbor's um, uh, health is as important as my health. Um, so yeah, I mean, we've got a, we got a lot of things to reckon with moving forward. And, you know, we also want to think to ourselves if something like that, because they are talking about, well, if it's happened once, it could happen again. That this is not, this is not the first time in our lifetimes that we're going to, 
we're, we're going to experience something like this and that, that uh, you know, the conditions uh, with, with um, even with the climate crisis, the conditions may be brewing something like this even more rapidly. So, um, you know, yeah, we have, a, we have a lot of things to think about for the future. And, and, and you know, the fact that our government didn't immediately uh, in March or April of last year say, <laughs> look, everybody just stay the fuck home. Let, let us pay you to stay home. You know, this is the best way to get, us, get this virus controlled is that everybody who can stay home stays home. We'll pay you to do it. If we have essential workers who have to be out there, we're going to make sure that you you are 100% protected uh, and, and we will subsidize your employers to do that. I mean, this is the job of the federal government, uh, you know, and of course that wasn't going to happen under the Trump administration, but I think to myself, would it have happened under the Biden administration? You know, like uh, Elizabeth said, you've got eight senators who, who took a two took a shit on the minimum wage and why you don't want workers to live in dignity what is that mindset about so i'm not even convinced that the democratic party would have handled this appropriately um you know so we've got to think about you know what pandemic preparedness means in the future and if we hit something like this again what is our immediate response going to be you know how are we really going to serve uh, uh um you know the safety of our society it's uh you know i'm not confident that we're there um, you no, know, even, no. even through everything we've been through for the last year. Yeah. So yeah. we've, we've taken up an hour here. That's, um, it's been fantastic talking to you, uh, Thomas and Elizabeth. I, I really enjoy our talks every week. Uh, we missed Greg on this one, uh, and I hope Greg had a great workshop. Uh, but, um, unless there are any final thoughts on behalf of, uh, okay, now what, and our host, Greg Arias, Thomas, Elizabeth, and Robin, uh, I wish everybody uh, a good week and we'll catch up with you next Friday. Nice. Goodbye, everybody. Yeah. Goodbye, mate.